Hi, Irina. Hi, Isabella. We're back in the studio after such short time. This episode contains topics surrounding substance abuse, suicide, and sexual assault. If those topics are triggering to you, you can skip this episode and come back to us for the next one. So today is Tuesday, August 29, and a podcast came out today called Bella's Defining Moments, where Isabella is spilling the tea on her life and talking about defining moments. And um, I hope you check it out because she's talking about a lot of a lot of cool stuff, right? How did you how did you feel about Fabulous. I mean, the whole thing was about me. You can't feel any better than that, right? Right. So your ego was fed to the to My the max. ego was fed and fat. Yes. And fat, <laughs> fat and fat. Okay. Um, today we are doing an interview again, but Bella and I are interviewers. And yes. then we have somebody in an interviewee chair. I really have to get this down. Um and I feel like, Isabella, that you should introduce this fabulous human because she's somebody you've known for a long time. Yes, this is one of my dearest friends, my soulmate. Um, her name is Sarah, and Aww. I love her. I love you too, boo. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Hi, Irina. What's up? Oh, it's so nice to have you on because Isabella talks so much about you and your friendship and all the adventures. So I was talking to Isabella's mom today and she was giving us feedback and I said, oh, you know, I'm going to leave in two hours to go to our studio because, you know, Bella, I call your house, now your studio. And I said, oh, we, we're interviewing somebody today. And she said, oh, who are you interviewing? And I said, Sarah, Isabella's friend. I was like, have you met her? She was like, have I met her? I've met her. She was like, she was studying with Isabella and she, didn't you stay there with them? Um, yeah, I end up crashing at Bella's parents' house quite a bit when I'm on some mountain adventures. So yeah. Yeah. So she said, oh, you're going to love her. You're going to love her. She, and she was saying how like awesome you are. And uh, so yeah, I'm Aww. excited. I'm excited to hear your story. Well, shout out to Ingrid. Thanks for loving me and letting me stay in your house every time I come through Carbondale. Really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Sarah's always welcome. So Sarah is just the most fascinating person I think I've ever met. And she has some really cool stories. Today also, we're celebrating three days sober. Whoop, whoop. Yes. Heck yeah. So um, should we start at the beginning? We should start at the beginning. beginning. All good stories start at the beginning. Hit me with it. Yes. So... If you can tell us where, kind of where it all began, where did you grow up? So that's such a fun question, and I have yet to figure out how to answer it. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska, but that's not where I lived. It was... I had no idea. Okay, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty wild place that I don't remember, Um, and lived in a tiny little town on the Bethel River called Antioch with my mom who was some kind of phlebotomist research lab person and my dad wasn't really around but he was a bush pilot and my older sister and how long did you did you stay in Alaska two and a half years so I think it was the cold that finally drove out my family and I think it's really hard being a single mom without resources up in a tiny little town in Alaska 
So from there, I, I mean, this is all conjecture because I don't remember, but I believe I went to Wisconsin and bounced from Wisconsin to Arizona and my first memories are in Arizona. You, you, you mentioned just off before we were talking, you mentioned that you moved 18 times. At least. I think I've lost count. Moving so much. And I'm just talking like when you were older, how did that, what effect did that make on you? Did you like moving? Were you used to it or was it hard for you? Um, I did not necessarily appreciate moving as much as I did when I was a kid. It was really chaotic, and now I find myself thriving in chaos, but it's really hard for me to stay in one place for a long time. So now as an adult, do you still move a lot? Or like now you live in Colorado, so have you been here for, for a while? Yeah, so I've technically been in Colorado on and off since I was 13. And... My dad has a house up in Golden Gate Canyon that I'm currently crashing at while I go back to school. I consider Colorado my home, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, as much as a home can be, but the entire state, because there's not one specific place I've lived in Colorado long enough to feel like home. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm so glad you're here. I know that it's quite an adventure growing up with your mom. And then you said your dad's um, a pilot. Is he still a pilot? Like now that you live at the house and mm -hmm. I know that you have some younger sisters and you help watch them. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. I think they help watch me, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, my dad is a pilot and he does a lot of international cargo flights. So it's a pretty sweet living spot because my family is never there. It's, it's just me party party did you ever party. party in high school did you ever have parties there I was the great Gatsby of my high school by senior year because there was no supervision and I had a big empty house it was pretty awesome that's I feel like such a dream for a teenager in high school or I don't know any any age right when your parents are not around yeah I think I lived everybody's dream but it's also a lonely life being up there in the mountains. It's kind of cold, kind of dark. You hear the coyotes at night and you're like, ooh, I kind of wish there was family here. Yeah. So you mentioned that when you were living in Alaska, you were just with your mom. But now you talk about your dad and how you now with him and at his house. So how did he reappear at your life? He was always there distantly. And he was busy flying, but my mom and my dad never knew each other, really. They were just friends and neighbors, and I just happened to be born, like, eight months later after. <laughs> I don't even want to know. And um, they I've never actually seen them together. I never saw my parents together, even once that I can remember. And my dad kind of brought me back into his life and his parents' life, my grandparents, because my mom struggled with issues around addiction and mental health. And I needed adults to look after me that were slightly more responsible. So as long as I can remember, it's been my grandparents and my dad who took care of me. Mm -hmm. And when did you reconnect it with your dad? How old were you? Do you remember? I think I was three. Okay. Three so, and so a half, four somewhere in there 
not so not long after you moved out of Alaska. Uh, so you lived in Alaska, moved out. Your mom was single mom. Also really fascinating what you said about your parents. You haven't like seen you. So they were never married. They were just friends that happened to have you. How was your relationship like with your mom? Because you mentioned that she struggled with addiction. And then so for most of your life, you were with your dad and your grandparents. Um, and how was your relationship with your mom? Let's start there. So my mom's an interesting character in my book. Uh, her name was Michelle. Unfortunately, she passed away from a suicide, or her suicide, in 2009 when I was 11. Um, she is an interesting woman in the fact that she was really adventurous and put herself out there and probably artistic. But honestly, I don't really remember much about her other than she was just always traveling, mm -hmm. like flights of fancy. I remember moving around Arizona a lot with her. I remember going to Mexico with her. I have just a bunch of random assorted memories of this woman who is my biological mother, but whose face I can't really recall. I saw her for the last time when I was seven on a short supervised visit. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think her story is more interesting than mine. She was arrested for drinking and driving with me in the car uh, after a bad car crash for like the third time. And she escaped the hospital with the help of her brother, my uncle Brent, and fled to Mexico from anywhere between like six months to a year. And I would get these crazy letters from her and the rest of my family. And at that point, I had moved up to Wisconsin to be raised by my dad's parents. So I think I was five, four or five. Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys, numbers aren't my strong suit. That's okay. Um, and she was just a really chaotic, messy person who had a lot of potential but never got to really live it out due to her own struggle with alcohol so why do you think that she like you said she was messy with a lot of potential why do you do you think it's the way she was raised and brought up I think that generation really struggles with substance abuse issues and mental health issues because nobody had anyone to talk to because there was a lot of stigma. I think women in her generation struggled with domestic violence. And I'm almost certain that there was some aspect of that involved in her earlier, later relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that she was a natural-born wanderer who didn't know how to settle down, but who had the expectation that she would settle down and be a wife. Mm. And it's all conjecture because she... And I never really got to know each other. It's actually kind of interesting. She left me 20 or so letters that I still haven't read. And I'm 25 years old, so I'm going to get on that. Um, but they're pro they probably would explain her life if I open them, which I will get to someday. When you're ready. When I'm ready. Yeah, there's no rush. Yeah. In the meantime, I just have all the stories about her that other people tell me. Do you remember, like, a fun memory that you had with her? Honestly, 
I remember going to the beach with her. We were living in a little trailer in a place called Rocky Point in Baja, Mexico. And I loved the beach and would just be allowed to wander wherever I wanted to go in that tiny little town in Mexico, which is unheard of today. And I got stung by a jellyfish. Um, I'm pretty sure she had to pee on my foot. And (laughs) then I got to watch all of my favorite movies on VHS, of course, in the back of our camper for the rest of the day. But as far as real memories of her go, I don't have many. Either my brain blocked it out to protect itself or I was just too young by the time she passed that I just don't have much to go by. Like things with Michelle were always chaotic and complicated. And I had an older sister who left pretty early on. She moved to Germany when she was 16. I was four. And she like freed herself from the trauma and the pain that our mom caused and has built this awesome life for herself. And even she doesn't really remember much about Michelle. You call her Michelle? Uh, yeah. yeah. It's hard to call her mom. It's not I'm a mom character. I'm really proud of you because, you know, I've been friends with Sarah for a while. So I think it's really hard when you don't have that mother figure in your life. It and is. I think, like, seeing Sarah over the years, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, you kind of idolize this person that you don't know. And she's just done some horrific things. So I'm really proud of you for, you know, being able to step aside and call her Michelle and understand that she may have been your biological mother, but, you know, she's not yeah, person of mother. But you have had some incredible women in your life, like your grandma, for example. I know she meant so much to you and she really taught you the ropes. Yeah, I'm very lucky in the sense that a community of women have stepped in over the years to take care of me. My maternal and paternal grandmothers specifically carol my dad's mom raised me um ingrid bella's mom has also had a huge effect on my life as well as our friend marie's mom nancy and just a wild assortment of other women who saw this motherless wounded hurt child and decided to take me under their wing and i think i'm honestly more lucky for that what about um what about your dad how is your relationship with your dad and how what role does he play in your life it's good it's getting better I think with a lot of trauma comes defiance obviously I was the great Gatsby of my high school (laughs) um but he has had a lot of patience for me and he has seen me grow and change so many times that sometimes I feel like he doesn't necessarily know who I am on the day-to-day or even on the year-to-year, but he knows what I value and what truly means the world to me, and he values that by extension. Mm -hmm. He's a really cool guy. Um, Paul is... Well, he's an adventurer, he's a pilot, he's successful, and he's carved this life for himself and his three daughters, despite a lot of odds and a lot of bad romantic relationships. And he's just such a badass. Like, I remember climbing mountains with him growing Mm -hmm. up, 
and we would run all over the place in Colorado. And to this day, he's still an avid hiker and an avid hunter. And I think there's also a part of your personality that gets shaped by being here with his family week on, week off, or two weeks on, mm-hmm. week off. And it's a difficult life. It's a difficult life to fly all over the world and constantly change your sleep schedule and have to worry about your kids at home and hoping that there are people there who are taking the best care of them that they can. And I think he also has had to sacrifice a lot for us. And I see that. With that said, we do have a complicated relationship. For example, he's like wildly conservative and I'm me. And if anyone knows me, I'm basically the communist manifesto walking (laughs) um and we just differ with some of our values and through that there is love and a high expectation for me to succeed on my own terms Mm -hmm. which is lovely it's it's really cool to have him in my corner and also shout out to Paul for giving me free housing while I go back to school because that's the MVP. I love living on top of a mountain right now. That's sick. That's awesome. Hearing you talk about your parents, because I'm a parent too, right? Being a parent is the most amazing thing, but on the other hand, is it's hard too because just what you said about your dad, you know, He's trying to provide for his family, right? But in that, he's, he's sacrificing sometimes spending with you because he has to travel and all of that and worrying about kids. And that's never, <laughs> never going to be like, ooh, everything's perfect. Like, you know, today I finish at home and then I, I, I came here. But my kids say, oh, mama's going to do a podcast. But it's also you're driving and you're feeling guilty for leaving your kids, but you're building something that later in life kids say, my mom did this, so then... Now we have this different life or we have these things. But yeah, being a being a parent is hard. Yeah, well said. I think it's cool that your kids are going to be able to hear your voice someday. I know. Shout out to the MVP. By the way, my grandparents, my dad's parents, really did the raising here. And <laughs> they like struggle bust with me. I was a handful. But they let me have the free run of their farm in Wisconsin and gave me a pretty awesome stable childhood as best as they could so that's really awesome that that they stepped in and helped your dad the best they could I wonder if you can like, recall a memory something that your grandma or your grandpa was grandpa in in the picture mm-hmm. yeah that they said something that till this day you like because they said this I still remember and I'm still doing this or you know something something profound defining moments defining moments <laughs> yeah my grandpa, um, we call him Bud, but his name is Harlow Ostebo, had the expectation for me to just do my best. It didn't matter the outcome. And I stick by that every day. So if I, and I was really hard on myself with, for example, grades and the piano, I'd play the piano for like two hours a day. Um, and he would just insist that as long as I'm doing my best, let the rest go. And you're, it's basically like he's saying, like, I still love you no matter what. Just be the best human you can be right yeah. now. And if you can't offer that much to the world, that's okay. That's the best you can do to a kid from, you know, a parent, a grandparent. So then the kids 
then the kids know that I don't have to be perfect, but as long as I do the best I can for today, as long as I'm kind, you know, my parents still will have love for me. Maybe I don't succeed at that piano, you know, but they are there for me no matter what. Yeah, it definitely changed my entire perspective and it really influences the way I think about everything. It has allowed me to become a softer, kinder version of myself while at the same time, like, finally pursuing what makes me happy and, like, just doing anything that makes me feel like I'm doing the best to have this existence. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's good advice for people, especially people who are hard on themselves. I just wanted to ask you a follow-up question because I can relate to being hard on yourself. So, so Grandpa said, just do the best you can. What else contribute to being softer on yourself? Being not as harsh. Oh, well, in that vein of thought, uh, sobriety is a pretty soft way <laughs> to be less hard on yourself. Uh, three days sober, whoop whoop. But there's also just the expectation that I don't have to win every race. Hell, I don't even have to compete. I just need to do the activity and like let it bring me joy. Oh my gosh, can we ride this? I don't have to win every race. I don't even have to compete. I'm going to put it on the t-shirt. She's full of like amazing inspirational. Okay, also, are you natural redhead? No, I wish. Okay, because I am. So I thought we can do more bonding, but... Oh, no. Okay. I, I, she uses henna. <laughs> I use henna. Oh, do you? Yeah, I love henna. I, like, it makes... It makes it look really natural, but I'm letting my roots grow out right now, so I can't lie to you. You normally I would. Like, yeah, I'm a total ginger. Because because you know why, Isabella? Because I was gonna steal her from you because I have and my friend Mora can relate to this. I keep telling her that I stole all her friends. Even though that's not true because she introduced me. Everybody who introduced me to amazing people are like, I wanna keep them. I wanna also like be around them. But since you're not natural or head head, that's okay, we can we can move on. You gotta go. Yeah, you're I mean, away. <laughs> Irina, honestly, as far as it goes, or, yeah, I guess I have a soul and we have a joke here where gingers don't have souls. So I have the red hair that's fake and I still have a soul intact. And okay, so, so you don't have a soul. You well, don't have a soul. I've never heard that. Why don't never gingers heard. don't have souls, dude? I've never heard that. Why don't us? I don't know. It's, where it's that an American from. thing. It's an American thing. I think it's because they used to burn witches at the stake with red hair. But for as long as I can remember, everybody's been telling me that gingers don't have souls. I am a witch. I am a natural redhead. Yeah, that would make you a witch in Protestant America. Pretty cool. <laughs> okay, so gingers don't have souls. I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway, moving on. So you mentioned you three days sober. Congrats. But... I wanted to ask what, um, I want to know why you started drinking. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, when I was seven years old, my uncle Thor gave me a mimosa and it was single-handedly the best thing I had ever had in my entire life. And it's all been down the hill from there. So I... I'm the child of an alcoholic who is the child of alcoholics from a dad who has a family filled with alcoholics and I have ADHD and my first memories all involve my mom 
literally crashing cars quite wildly, like flipping them five times or more off of large objects with me inside. But I was always okay, miraculously. Um, And somehow, I don't know, that turned into me drinking. There is a genetic component where alcoholism runs in the family and I am predisposed for it. My grandpa and my grandma would always warn me, like, we have so many alcoholics in the family. Don't become like that. Uh, when you're, But that's not fair. Well, when you're, like, eight, you don't know what that means. Um, and I just grew up in an environment that was had a wine cellar, a literal room in the house dedicated to wine. And I think there's an attitude in Wisconsin. Now, let me take that back. Wisconsin's legal drinking age is nine for children with their parents at the bar. Is that a joke? No. That's real? That is a real lot. You can go to Wisconsin, you are nine years old, and you are with your parents, and they say, yes, you can have a drink at the bar. Like a beer or whatever? like a beer. Yeah. And... This is America, people. uh, This is America. (laughs) And... But... But you cannot read books about real history, but you can drink in Wisconsin. Yep, exactly. Gotta love it. So I was surrounded by alcohol and alcoholism from my earliest memories. With that said, I really started drinking like as a problem when I was 14. My mom had committed suicide and I had moved to this new state. I didn't have friends, at least friends that I would consider true friends. And I was so very alone. I was deep in an eating disorder and I just needed an out and an escape. And there was always a handle of vodka somewhere to be found. Of course. So the first time I blacked out, passed out, and then got back up, I was barely 15. It was probably like two or three days after my 15th birthday, which was one of the wildest parties anyone could have ever been to, gotta say. I was at school, and I drank myself into a stupor in the bathroom for no reason other than I was stressed out because I had It must have been finals week. I had test anxiety. It was finals week at my high school. And someone found me, called security. And before security got there, I had ran off, gone back to class, taken my U.S. government test, like the final for the year in high school, gotten an A, and then gotten handcuffed out in the hallway. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like, trashed passed out bathroom went to class aced the test and then the cops came for me let me finish my last two questions i remember having the water bottle full of vodka passing it back where it's to my friend lexi and then going to my fate and waiting in the principal's office for my dad and crying to my english teacher who had just happened to be walking by about struggling and how I had never done this before and I never never thought I would get in trouble like I didn't mean to no I was partying harder than any 15 year old you've ever met um 
And it's just been rough from there because I switched schools to a much smaller school in a much safer community where I couldn't be exposed to that. And I set up my own operation. The partying got a little less out of hand and I started thriving and I made true friends who I consider my best friends to this day. But I was really struggling with my mental health. I was really depressed. I was still struggling with an eating disorder and I was running like seven to 10 miles a day looking for endorphins that I'm never going to find. And I just felt empty inside. And the only thing that could fill it up was getting high or drinking. It's tough to say, but like you should probably check in on your 12 or 13 year olds and see if they need help with substance abuse issues because I was really good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just always been there. I don't know what it's like to be an adult that doesn't drink. I've had a couple months off here and there and then I've relapsed and um, I OD'd in college a little bit. That was there. Not fun. Zero out of ten. And like quit for a while and then went to Israel on a trip and started partying even harder. And I have like some harder stories. Like I am a sexual assault survivor. I am a survivor of many things. And I think I just didn't know how to deal with the fact that I had trauma. I couldn't even address the word trauma as it related to my own life because I wanted to just numb it out so badly for so many years. Seems like you were trying to fill some void, right? That was was with so many things. You you are 25, right? I'm, I'm 25. 25. And I've done a lot of work on myself. I've definitely toned it way down. But... There comes a point in your life where you have to look back and be like, no matter where I run to, no matter what country I'm in or what activities I'm doing or crazy adventure I can tell my friends or what man or woman I'm dating, just no matter who I'm with, there's still going to be this void there. We can call it the mother wound. We can call it PTSD. We can just call it like what it is, which is just this like, gaping hole that I will always need to try to fill and for me substances has I've I'm done I'm just sick of trying to fill a hole in my chest that I can't fill with drugs and alcohol no matter how hard I try I love it because earlier she was like they no longer serve me and I feel like that's I don't know some really cool advice yeah they no longer serve me Do what serves you. Um, Do the best you can. I've relapsed. I've been to AA. I've been to Al-Anon. Done the support groups. I've tried countless times before to just tone it down while promising myself that I don't have to give it up forever. I can just manage it and have only one glass of wine or go to one rave and just do a couple things <laughs> or have just one cigarette a week and it always spirals out of control 
And I think after the third or fourth time of going through this entire process, you just have to recognize that some things are not meant for some people. Can you can you tell me the defining moment that was when you decide, okay, enough is enough, because you mentioned, okay, they no longer serve me. You you recognize that you're trying to fill something that it's not there, but this is not filling that that thing, right? So what what was the moments or a few moments that that define like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I have to get sober. Oof. Well, every time I've woken up with some random person, I'm like, oh, could probably not do that again. Um, it's an accumulation of moments of waking up with regrets or in my case, literally waking up on an island off the coast of West Africa. That was pretty insane. That happened. Um, and that was a big moment for me where I was like, I need to stop. Like, people don't just wake up in other places that they did not fall asleep in. There was that moment and half of my exes, at least, were <laughs> regrets that I would not, mistakes I would not have made. If I hadn't been drinking and every time I go through a breakup with them, then I would be like, okay, this is it. I'm done. Never going to touch blow ever again. Never going to drink ever again. And then you get caught in this shame cycle, I guess. You're hungover and you're miserable and you're lonely and you're sad and you're ashamed of what you do have done and you're so ashamed that the only thing to do is to numb it again and so you numb it and you try to numb it without using drugs or alcohol and then you suddenly start drinking again and now we're back to the <laughs> level zero I think what was different about this time is that I am fully cognizant of my past three relapses I am armed with tools, like a really good therapist and a truly loving, amazing supportive partner and amazing supportive friends, all of whom are also not drinking. And I know what my sugars are. I have dealt with my trauma and I've gone to do EMDR therapy for my PTSD. And so there was something about reaching rock bottom this time that felt hopeful and that was yeah I loved it because today she told me she was like I didn't have to reach rock bottom completely this time to decide to be sober and I feel like that's different from the past and also in the past I know you've talked about like I need a break and this time you're like no I'm done forever yeah so but also something you said you know how when you wake up and you and you feel shameful right and shame is such an interesting thing because shame has such a power on us, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, have you ever read or listened to uh, Brene Brown? I was literally about to say, have you ever read or listened to Brene Brown? <laughs> yeah. I, oh my gosh. I've listened to countless interviews and I've read her books and I gave some to Bella, um, some, some of her books, but she's just amazing. And I remember she was talking about, I can't remember from which book, but when she talks about you know, shame and, and, and all these things that we're feeling, right? It's always important to say that 
I'm not a bad person, I just made a bad choice. Because then you can separate that from yourself. So then you don't, you don't, you basically tell shame to fuck off and, you know, and make better choices. But um, I'm glad that you know who she is and listen to her and read her books. And also she has two podcasts or three. I mean, she, she is somebody who inspires me and who, who helped me also deal, deal with some, some struggles and just look at things like shame and being vulnerable and all of that in a whole different light. So mm-hmm. Brene Brown, if you're listening to a podcast, which I hope you are, thank you because you're helping so many people. My gosh, Sarah, I just am, I can listen to you forever because you are just sitting here meeting me for the first time today and just being so open and vulnerable and sharing the tools that help you. So hopefully somebody out there who's listening, who can listen to your story and say, oh, it's not just me. Because, you know, a lot of the times when we're going through something hard, it's, we think it's just me. Everybody's happy. Everybody's doing good. Everybody got their shit together. But then that's the power of sharing your story to where you know that you're not alone, to where there's other people and and how important it is to share the story. And so it's this is not the end, but just like just thank you for being so open and vulnerable. Oh, well, thank you for giving me a place to be vulnerable. I think we live in a system and we are a product of systems that continually enforce these ideas of perfection on people. And I really think that a lot of us are victims to a system that push drugs and alcohol and everything else in access, simply either for the sake of profit or for the sake of entertainment. And there's no shame in being a victim to a society that is literally attempting to victimize you everywhere you turn. I would have been ashamed to talk about this a year ago and yet I realized that I don't really have that much to be ashamed about like I'm still a good person I'm doing my best to help people I'm trying to be a light in the world it's back to like what my grandpa said about doing your best and like through all of it despite the many many awful mistakes I've made I knew there is something better for me out there but like I can't find that if I'm fucked up just doesn't you you have to be a clear of thought and like clear of heart and clear of mind to go out and get whatever it is and grasp it and hold on to it so whatever that is like I just know that it's going to be even more fun than anything any substance can give me it will be it will be and stay stay on this path and continue your journey of being sober because you are a wonderful human. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so, so much for sharing your backstory and being so vulnerable with us. I so appreciate it and I'm just in awe every time I talk to you. Next week, we will be sharing Sarah's Defining Moments Part 2 and we'll be discussing her journey diving into emergency medicine and what it's like to be an EMT. It's It's really cool and you don't want to miss it. Anyways, thank you so, so much for listening and go give us a follow at the handle moments that define us. 
and visit our website at www.momentsthatdefineus.com. We'll talk next time.